What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Tonight, we are going to do that in one of my favorite ways, and that is by doing a sermon review. Now, typically, these uh, these sermon reviews are done um, and then recorded and then edited and uploaded, but I already have another one coming out this week, so I figured we'd go ahead and talk about this Alistair Begg thing now instead of later. Uh, I am in no, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know the word. I am, I'm not the only one that's covered this. That's all I'm saying. I'm clearly not the only one that's talked about this, is talking about it, yada, yada, yada. What I want to do though, that I think is a little different, I don't think anybody else has done this, is to actually go through the full sermon, right? One of the things, one of the reasons actually that we do these sermon reviews is so that we can work through the entire sermon and hear what the entire sermon is about. And especially in this case, in which it's a sensitive subject and it's caused so much controversy online, I think it would be wise to watch the whole sermon, listen to the whole thing. Now, full disclosure, I've already listened to the sermon all the way through once because I wanted to know what I was getting into. The sermon, just so you guys know, is 45 minutes long by itself. If you've watched these sermon reviews before, you know that this is going to be something that is going to take way longer than 45 minutes. In fact, I'd expect, just to give you a, a realistic timeline, for this to take a total of two hours. We'll be done in about two hours, so just you know, go in and out as needed. You can rewatch this later if you'd like. But with that in mind, I want to make sure that we give the sermon as much due diligence as it is. Now, in case you don't know, in case you're just completely lost on what's going on, I tried to describe what's going on in the description, but let me give you a very, very brief overview now before we jump into the sermon so you kind of get a context of what's going on. Because this is not a normal sermon. This is a, res uh, a response sermon, basically. He's responding to a controversy that he's found himself in via sermon form. So what's basically happened is Alistair Begg went on a radio show, gave an interview about apparently, if I understand this right, a book in which he wrote or commented about uh, different subjects. In. Now, in this particular book, uh, apparently he talks uh, or gives an example of a, uh, a time that someone called him, a grandmother called him, and ask if she should go to her transgender granddaughter's wedding. That's my understanding of the situation. Alistair, after taking into account, he says every sort of uh, thing you know that he should take into account as a pastor, uh, gives her the advice to go um, because apparently the granddaughter and the granddaughters, whoever she's getting married to, um, knows that the grandmother disapproves, but Alistair says, how shocking would it be for them if you show up with a gift, even though they know you disapprove, and therefore apparently showing the love of Jesus in that situation. That's his logic. Now, that kind of blew up. A lot of people have made comments. A lot of people have said a lot of things about Alistair Beck. I, just cards on the table, have listened to a ton of his things. I did a sermon review on him from a long time ago from 2 Samuel. It was a really good sermon review. So I'm interested, again, to kind of dig through this with you guys and kind of go to the text about it. Now, even though this is a response sermon review, we're going to look at the same three things we look at every sermon review. Does he read the text? Does he exegete the text using context and culture? And does he preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? I know it's a response sermon, but it's still a sermon, so it should contain those things. So let's go ahead and hop into it and see what we get. Let's go to the review screen and uh, and get into it. Now, I'll try to uh, be listening as well as... Um, uh, reading your comments as we go, because I'd love your feedback. That's the cool thing about sort of a live version of this. So let's let's hop into it. On at truthforlife.org. 
I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and to chapter 13 and to follow along, I should say Luke chapter 15 and to follow along as I read from here. Uh, Let me tell you what I plan to do. I want to say a word or two from the text here somewhat briefly. I then want to um, give you some of the background to the influences on my own thinking in relationship to these things, and um, then perhaps as some uh, concluding comments. For those of you who have just arrived and you say, I don't have a clue what he's talking about, well, just ask someone next to you. I'm sure somebody has some idea, um, and, uh, and if not, it will become clear in the end. Now, just to give, I mean, he says to himself what he's going to do here, right? The idea is to read the text, explain what he was thinking, and then give some concluding comments. That's the idea. So this isn't a traditional sermon as Alistair would give it, because typically he's an expository preacher. He preaches through the Word. And so he's going to uh, give uh, a reasoning for his thinking, he says, based specifically on this text. This is the text that he's sort of uh, drawing the main idea out of his reasoning for that. So, with that in mind, make sure you are open to Luke chapter 15, because that's going to very much, again, he said that's going to influence, or has influenced, sort of his way of thinking and why he's chosen to say the things that he said. Luke chapter 15, and uh, we read, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, He calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me 
as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Okay, so one of the things, if you've watched these sermon reviews before, that I try to do before he gets into sort of working through the text and using his explanation of why he is going to look at it this way, I want to work through it really quick, right? So I think it's a really good idea to go through it. So I want to make sure that I'm very clear that, like, it's amazing that Alistair went through the whole text. That's not a surprise, though. If you know Alistair Begg, you know he's going to work through the whole text. That's sort of a classic thing that he does. Now, a couple of things that I want to work through really quick, right, is the beginning, which he, po he pointed out really well, which is that the whole scenario, the whole context of Jesus telling these three separate sort of parables is that there are sinners drawing near to him, him being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, and they're mad that this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the whole, the whole scenario is that Jesus is eating with sinners. Um, and so he's having, it's not just that he's uh, preaching to them, but he's, he's in, in relationship with them. Again, you've probably heard this before, but the idea of eating is this sign of, of um, like community. It's this sign of, of friendship, basically, which is why, for example, when you go to 1st or 2nd Corinthians, when Paul talks about if a brother is sinning and he's unrepentant of his sin, you shouldn't even associate with him, right? It's the same sort of concept because in association, in associating with him, you're saying that, oh, this unrepentant brother is, you know, I'm cool with him. Now, it is a bit different here in regards to Jesus is eating with him. It's not that he's cool with him, but the idea is that he is eating with him, which is showing some friendship. Now, Jesus tells, and the reason we know that he's not like just cool with them sinning is because over and over again, we see he calls people to repentance. Now, in this, these three examples, there's three things in, well, there's a thing in each example I think is really important. So at the bottom, so the first one, he tells the parable uh, of having a hundred sheep and loses one. Now he gets to the bottom 
And the, he says the point of this in verse 7 is just so I tell you there will be more joy, joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous person who there is no repentance. So this idea of repentance is key. There's rejoicing over repentance versus a whole bunch of people in which there is no repentance. So repentance is key here in that verse. It's the whole point of the parable, Jesus says. Now, we move down to the lost coin, and we get the same sort of idea here in 10, this whole lost coin, seeking this coin out, looking for this coin and finding it. Verse 10, just so I tell you there is uh, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, right? So in both scenarios, there is, uh, again, this person looking for a thing, shepherd looking for a sheep, woman looking for a coin. So there is this seeking after, but it's really, Jesus says, the whole point is there is a joy in heaven. There is rejoicing at the repentance of a sinner. And so we sort of get this idea that Jesus is saying, when I'm eating with these people, when I'm receiving them, the idea is to bring them to repentance. This is also Paul's words, right? When he says, the graciousness of God leads us to repentance, that the mercy of God leads us there. When we see what we deserve versus the love and mercy and grace we get from Jesus, it leads us to this repentance. And so this is the same sort of idea in both the short short first parables, the one about the sheep and the one about the coin. Now, we're going to move on to the last and longest one about the prodigal son. Now, there is a key verse here that I think is really important. Again, contextually, you kind of have to know the context of what's going on here. But when we go down here, um, let me see, in verse 30, uh, 24, the father says, for my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole context of the parable in Jewish culture at the time. Long story short, when if you were to do the thing that the son did here, it is highly disrespectful to ask for your inheritance before your father dies. And in doing so, it's incredibly disrespectful. But the idea that he does this and then leaves, he is essentially dead to the family, right? There, it's, it's as if he is actually dead. Um, I forget the commentary that I read when I was getting ready for this sermon. I preached a long time ago, but the, the, the idea is that if you left, it would essentially be a funeral for you. You're gone. You have disrespected the family. You are disowned by the family, you are dead. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, there's certain key cultural things that are popping out to them here, um, many of which you've probably heard, many of which you may not know. This is a pretty key one, though, is that he, the son would have been culturally dead to them because he had disrespected his family so much. But he comes back in a repentant nature, and he receives him, uh, and he was dead, but now he's alive. So though repentance isn't named in the third story, it's actually lived out and seen in the third parable. And so what we have here is three separate parables about God seeking the salvation of the lost one, but the repentance of the lost one being what brings joy into heaven because there is a sinner that was far from God and is now brought near. And Jesus says, this is why I'm you know, this is why I'm eating with them to draw them near. This is the whole idea here. So this is, um, this is the general idea. So let's go back to Alistair now and let him sort of work through the text and explain sort of via the text here, why he has particularly picked this to describe sort of a reasoning behind what he said. Brief prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the testimonies that we've just heard of your grace and your goodness. 
the way in which you work mysteriously and wonderfully in the hearts and minds of men and women, showing us who we are and showing us how much we need Jesus, and then bringing us to that wonderful closing reality of faith in Him. We thank you that the heartbeat of you, the Father, is for those who are to be added to your family. And we thank you that as we read the Bible, we don't have to stretch to find that application. And so we pray that as we have these moments together now, given the framework out of which uh, we come to this evening, we pray that the Holy Spirit will preside over all of my words, all of my thinking, our thinking, and that you will give to us a great sense of joy and delight in the privilege that you've granted to us of seeking to see unbelieving people become the committed followers of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The context is set in the opening two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and the reason for their complaint was, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he gives to us these uh, three pictures, first of having sheep, all of them secure, one lost, seeking it, the joy that follows it. Then this picture of uh, either a necklace or whatever it might have been, and the loss of one of these pieces, and then all of the search for it. And the joy that is represented in that is uh, nothing compared to the joy before the angels of God, he says, over a sinner who repents. And then he moves on to give to us the story of the two sons. And clearly, uh, the end of this um, chapter, which begins in verse 25 with the record of the older son, is Jesus making sure that the Pharisees do not miss the application of what he's saying, that people would be able to hear this, and they would be able to say, well, I see myself in this. Uh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. But perhaps other people listening would not make those applications at all. And there are two sons who are lost in this chapter. One is lost far away, and the other one is lost close up. And I want just to point three things out concerning this older son. His acknowledgment of his brother's return is at best a grudging acknowledgment. And three observations. The first is this, uh, the discovery that this man hated to make, the discovery that he hated to make. Um, he discovers, as we're told in the text, that there was music and there was dancing, and the celebration was already in place. He then dispatches, in verse 26, one of the servants uh, to go and investigate. In fact, he asks the servant, what is it that's going on with all of this celebration? And of course, the servant tells him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The expectation, I think, would be, at least on the part of the servant, that this would be a source of real joy for this brother, that uh, he would understand 
that um, his brother had been gone, had been lost to him and lost to the family in many ways, and now he was back. But the reaction of the elder brother is certainly not celebration. And uh, we're told that he was angry and he refused to go in. He could not celebrate the fact that his brother had come back and that his father had been prepared to accept him. So the discovery that he hated to make is also then followed by the sympathy that he failed to express. Uh, he sent a servant to find out what was going on. He could easily have gone himself, couldn't he? But he didn't want to be contaminated, I think, by the situation as it was unfolding. See, now that right there is a little weird. Like, there's presumption built into that statement. When I heard it the first time, it's weird. And the only reason I stop it is because he's going to kind of lean into this presumption of contamination. The older son didn't want to be contaminated by the unfolding of events. But the text is, I mean, the, the text is clear. It's now the older son was in the field and came to draw near to the house and heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. It's not that he didn't go because he wanted to, he didn't want to be contaminated. He just doesn't go because he doesn't know what the party's about. He doesn't know what it's for. Why go in? I mean, maybe he was curious, but he has no, we have no reason to believe he has any idea of a party happening in which can, he would be contaminated by who was there. So I just draw that out because again, this is a presumption that Beck is working with here. Beck is working with here that, oh, he doesn't want to go in because he doesn't want to be contaminated by the sinners. But in verse 25, we have no, there's, he doesn't even know what's happening until verse uh, 27. There's not even any inclination until verse 27 what's happening. So it's just odd to say he doesn't want to go into the party, so he sends a servant because he doesn't want to be contaminated. It's just, it's a, it's a stretch. He sends a servant. The father doesn't send the servant back by way of response, but the father comes back himself. That, of course, is an important principle, isn't it? That the father came out and entreated him. He came out and implored him. He came out and beseeched him. The perspective of the father is a yearning for both of his sons. He rejoices that one has returned, but he's concerned because he has another one actually in his own backyard that doesn't understand the reality of that which the other boy has discovered. And what Jesus is making clear here is the fact that God is a seeking God, that God is seeking those who are far from him, whether they're a long way away or whether they're actually close up. Now, to be clear, I want to be as fair as possible here. That part's not wrong. I mean, every parable is about a God that, well, the first two are definitely about God seeking something out. Um, and the third, which we'll get into, he does get into this a little bit, is about God looking in anticipation for the repentance of his son. Um, so I just want to be as fair as I can here. That, like, it was a weird take for him to say he did this. the older son doesn't want to go in and can get contaminated, but it's not a reach. It's actually pretty accurate here that the three parables that are told is of a God that, that seeks out those that are lost. And the father goes out to both of them, you will notice. 
in the story of the other boy. He decides he's coming back to his father. He's prepared his speech. I will say to him, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he arose and came to his father. But then the very next phrase is so wonderful, isn't it? But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. How did his father see him when he was a great way off? Because he was looking for him. Why was he looking for him? Because the heart of the father yearned for his boy. There's no difference here. Why does he go out and entreat him? Why does he go out and implore him? Because he longs for him. Now, I, I do want to say something here really quick, because we have to know why he's, he's preaching this, right? There's a motive behind it. That's just the reality of it. He stated at the beginning. So just keep in mind God longing for both of his sons, because he's going to bring that in near the end of this sermon in sort of an odd way. And I'm going to, we'll, we'll draw that out when it happens. But like, Beg is obviously no, no idiot. Like he's a really good communicator. And so it's weird to see him use this text in like this really sort of tight ropey way of where some of it's accurate and then some of it's a bit of a stretch that I wouldn't normally anticipate for him to make. But just keep, keep in mind this longing for his sons, because that does come in at the end. And the absence, you see, of forgiveness in, on the part of the older brother reveals something. It reveals that he doesn't understand the nature of forgiveness, that he doesn't understand what it means to actually be forgiven. And as a result of that, he doesn't have the capacity to forgive others who need the forgiveness. Now, if, if I can cross-reference uh, the, the book, which gave rise to the response to the grandmother, which gave rise to the interview about the book, there's lots Now, to be clear, I don't know the name of this book, okay? I'm not sure what book he's talking about or any book that he's going on. Um, so, apparently, there is a book that he, he has written, I don't know the name of it, in which he is being asked about this book, and that's the radio interview that he gave, right? So, there's that. Just to give you context in case you don't know. Logic in me parlaying to here, because what I'm saying is, unless, unless someone understands the forgiveness of God and how we are so in the wrong with God, whether you're a religious Pharisee or whether you're a lost cause, a drug-addicted, crazy person, the same grace of God is what woos us and wins us and brings us to Himself. If we do not understand the nature of our predicament, then we never understand the reality of our forgiveness. And in this book, that's what I'm actually saying, I'm, because we're working from the Sermon on the Plain, and we are understanding the fact that Jesus—well, let me just quote it—the proof that we understand how we have been loved by God, says Jesus, is to love our enemies the kind of love that is only possible as God enables us by the Holy Spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself when the category of neighbor includes everyone you meet, including your enemies. To do so is a supernatural action, and it is an action that is proof of our salvation. This is supposed to be an uncomfortable challenge. Quote, it is certainly un very uncomfortable 
to me. That's what I'm saying in the book. Here is how I think through what it would mean for me to live out Jesus' command myself. I think of people who are behaving in a way that rejects God and his ways. Now, what you need to know is that when I'm writing this, I am actually dealing with the circumstances that were in our minds when we studied Romans chapter 1, the reality of the finger in the face of God that is represented in those who have turned their backs on God, even to the point of their own sexuality being turned upside down. So, when I write the line, uh, I think of people who are behaving in a way that rejects God. That is a comprehensive reality, but this is what is in my mind, who reject God and His ways. That undermines what God says glues societies and families together, what glues societies and families together, the reality of conjugal love in a heterosexual monogamous marriage that produces children. They reject God. They reject His ways. They do it publicly, and they do it in a fashion that makes it absolutely clear that they have no interest in it while, quotes, mocking Christians as bigots. That's the context. Naturally, I do not like them, quote, but I am called to the supernatural work of loving them, not ignoring them, not avoiding them, but actively seeking to bless them. I am not called to walk on past them like the religious leaders in the parable of the Good Samaritan. No, I am called to be like the Samaritan, who is the classic illustration of loving and lending and doing good without a calculator and without the expectation of a payback. Now, that is then the context when a grandmother phones me up in tears and gravely concerned for the circumstances in relationship to one of our grandchildren. I'm not quoting the book to her. I'm only responding to her. She wrote a long letter. It sat on my desk for a long time. This happens to us all as pastors all the time. Now, on that note, before he gets any further, as pastors, that is 100% true. Not just as pastors. I mean, if you have if you have unbelieving friends, these conversations will come up, okay, clearly. Now, as pastors, what he's going to say here, this isn't a lady in his congregation. It's a lady that wrote him in. He's obviously got an enormous ministry on the radio, online. Everybody knows who Alistair Begg is. And so she's written in to talk to him about this situation. Now, with that being said, I think somebody in his position needs to be very careful about how you answer that because the only information you have is what is in the letter and then apparently the phone call that he has with her, which is incredibly limited. She is obviously listening to you because she thinks that very highly of you. She thinks you're going to give a biblically based answer on what she should do because she's clearly torn. Now, there's a whole lot of emotion going on here. I don't know if Anybody that watches this has been a pastor or even counseled anybody in this situation or even dealt with this in their real life. But the point is, like, there is a lot of emotion built up in this situation. And as pastors, you, you take that into account, but you don't let that override how you respond. And I think that that's very important. As a pastor, you are essentially, I mean, I don't want to say it in a way that makes it too much, but you're these people are coming to you 
to explain the word and basically be a representative of what, you know, who got it. Like, what would Jesus do in this situation? That's basically what they're asking you. And so their expectation is, is that you are going to give them that answer from the scriptures. And this is what this lady is doing. She apparently respects Beg, and so she writes him, and then he calls her. And so he seems to, in his own words, be giving her advice that he, he, he thinks he's filtering, or he is filtering through the Sermon on the Mount about loving your enemies. Now, let's see if it tracks with what he says, though, here. And on that occasion, when I listened to her talk, my great concern was for her and for her relationship with her granddaughter. I wasn't thinking about the nature of the circumstances in that moment of time. All I was thinking about was how can I help this grandmother not to lose her granddaughter, who has already publicly turned her back on God and her back on God's design and in every other way. So his own words are that he was thinking not about the situation, which is the transgender wedding, but he was thinking about how to make sure the grandmother doesn't lose the relationship with the granddaughter. Now, for me, I get where he's coming from, but I don't think it's the right way to look at it. The idea here is to, to stand firm on what the scriptures say to do, and if that relationship pans out doing that, great. If not, we go to prayer that God resolves the situation in ways that oftentimes only God can. So what he's doing, in his own words, is placing relationship over faithfulness in situations. And so, apparently, that is why he then gives the advice that he does, is because his concern is for the relationship, not the situation, which is problematic, because you can do both. There's a way to pastor and give pastoral advice while it says, this is how you should stand firm and pursue relationship. Like, the ball is in the other person's court at that point, right? That, that the ball is in their court. And so when you say, I, this is the line, I go no further than this, that is then in their court. If they choose to break relationship with you, which by the way, I know a number of people that have broken relationship with their friends, their parents, their, their children over the fact that these believers say, this is as far as I can go as a believer. And I, it's not that the believer cuts the relationship off with the individual, it's the individual cuts the relationship off with the believer. And Beg seems to frame this in a way that says, I was more concerned about their relationship than I was about the situation and giving advice based on the situation, which is, I, I think it's just problematic. And it only, it's going to get a little, a little worse. Let's keep going. And in the course of that conversation, I said, you know, one of the ways in which to catch your granddaughter off guard is actually do the opposite of what she expects you to do. What does she expect you to do? Avoid her. Stay away from her. Don't get contaminated by the situation. I said, well, it's See, that's where he's a wordsmith. Don't get contaminated by the situation, right? He said that before, when he, gave a, when he read into the text that the older son didn't want to be contaminated by the party. Again, I don't want to put any presupposition of what he's thinking or how he worded this sermon, but those are the only two times he mentioned contamination with sinners is what he read into the text in verse 
25, 6, and 7, and here. So there's he's, he seems to be trying to draw a line here that I think I think that what he says later backs up the fact that he is, in fact, trying to draw that line. Isn't that interesting? So what would happen if you actually went? Well, that gave great pause. And I said, but you should talk to your husband. You've got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And those were all the caveats that went around the conversation. But then I said, well, I think you should go. And why don't you give her a gift? Well, how would I ever know that that would set the cat among the pigeons? Because after all, it was a personal conversation between myself and somebody that I've never met in my entire life. And it was born out of the kind of conviction that I was personally reckoning with myself. I don't like this. I'm opposed to this. I do not endorse this. I have no interest in this. But this is my granddaughter. Now, it's that context, then, that gave rise to that. Okay, I mean, there's just no—I don't want to make comparisons here because I don't think it's a fair comparison, but this is a very similar situation that Andy Stanley apparently—this is the reason he thinks the way he does. I mean, this, was the, this is the same argument that Andy Stanley gave when he gave his whole, this is why we hosted this LGBTQ plus conference at our church, is because we're trying to hold these relationships between parents and children together, and the only way to do that is to embrace them and bring them in, and we call it embrace the journey. Or, I mean, so it's, it, this is the same thinking. Like, I hate to compare Andy Stanley with Alistair Begg, but this is the same situation. And what's more concerning to me is that Alistair, he just admitted that the advice that he gives is born out of the situation which he himself was wrestling through in about Romans 1. So how do you, how do you combine Romans 1 with love your enemies? And apparently as he's wrestling through this himself, which I don't, I don't know what he means by wrestling through because he seems like he's well knowledge in the Bible, so I'm not sure what he's wrestling through as far as theologically there. But in that wrestling through, this is why he gives the advice to the grandma, is because, again, he's trying to preserve the relationship, which is all well and good, but where is the line then in which you say, as a believer, this far and no further, right? There are points, I mean, Jesus himself says, you must love me more than your mother, your father, your, your brother, your sister, right? This idea of there is, there's a point in which devotion to Christ outweighs devotion to other people, fami- I mean, blood relationship. There's a point in which that stops. We see that all through the early church writings. I mean, this all the time. And so it's just, I mean, I don't want, I do not want to compare Beg to Stanley, but this is the same argument. Now I got to come back to the text because that was a deviation. The discovery that he hated to make, the sympathy that he failed to express. You see, what the problem is with this guy is that he views himself as the model son. He actually passes himself off in that way. But he thinks he's the model son, but he's living in the father's house like a slave. That's his terminology. I've never disobeyed your commands. I've been serving you. You see, the Pharisees were committed to slavish outward obedience while 
inwardly they were estranged from God. And they said to one another, if only we can make sure that we don't get ourselves contaminated by any of that, then surely we'll be in a perfect position. But look at the way the fellow operates. And Jesus is telling this story in the awareness of the fact that it is these religious leaders who are opposed to him who will eventually kill him. In verse 29, I never disobeyed you. You never gave me a goat. No, I, I didn't get what I deserved. But this your son can't even bring him to say, my brother, this your son, actually this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes? Who said anything about prostitutes? Pharisees often complain loudly of sins they would be quite interested in committing themselves. Okay, this part was really weird to hear for a couple reasons. So the first, let's go to the text first so we can explain this. So he's going to get into a minute about like Pharisees are the loudest about the things that they themselves want to do. It's just a weird deal. But he's using the text to sort of like as a proof text to prove that. So we get we get here at the bottom, okay, uh, where we go. Where was it at? Okay, so we're at, we're in verse 30 here. So it says, but when this son of yours came, who was devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattest calf for him. Now, Beck is using this as a, hey, the Pharisees always criticize the prostitutes, but they want to be with the prostitutes. That's essentially what he's saying. And, and in this, he like completely ignores the fact that this is a parable. So Jesus has kind of given us the background. So at the very beginning of this text, um, or at the beginning of this particular section of the text, Jesus sort of builds into the story that this is what this man does. Obviously, this is not a, a literal story that happened. Jesus builds this, the parable for us so that we can understand what's going on. Now, here's the thing we see at the very beginning. Um, at the very beginning, uh, in verse, where are we at? 14. And he spent... Uh, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. Oh, here we go. Not many days, the younger son gathered and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. Now, this reckless living is a junk drawer term. It's just things that he shouldn't have done at all. And so by the time we get down to this prostitutes thing, what, what we're looking at contextually is Jesus sort of giving the, the story away right? This, what I mean by that is that he's laying it out in front of the people and saying, hey, this guy did reckless things. When the son comes back, the older brother is complaining that this son went out and did everything and was recklessly and lived recklessly beforehand. Again, it's a parable. It's not like a, hey, this story actually happened. It is Jesus making a point. That's the point of the parable. Now, Beg is going to get into this really weird thing here where he goes into the people that are loudest about the certain sins are the one that want to do the sins. And he's almost like taking the finger being pointed at him in this situation and being like, no, it's you guys. Uh, it's a weird take. Let's, let's get into it. Be very, very careful when you hear 
your pastor or your teacher, whoever it is, lambasting a certain area of life, especially in the realm of morality, time and time again you will discover that that loud protestation actually, sadly, tragically, proved to be a very thin smokescreen for what was actually going on in the hearts of these people. Now, we have to admit, like, there's obviously been pastors that have been caught in sin. That's undeniable. But what he's basically saying is now, so if your pastor is really, really on about greed, the sin of greed, he's probably greedy. If your pastor is on about the sin of uh, of gossip, he's like really on about gossip. If your pastor is on about the sin of whatever, then he's probably the one that wants to do it. And there's no like, there's no nuance in this. It's just, hey, the Pharisees wanted to be with the prostitutes. And so Jesus calls them out about that. It's just a weird, it's a weird take in which it, it, it seems deflective more than it does actually like expositional from the text. The last thing by way of observation is that there is in this a necessity that he refused to accept. He refused to accept the necessity of what had happened. The father says to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting. It was necessary. I think in the NIV or the King James Version, it was necessary to celebrate and be glad. This isn't just something that I, I dreamt up on the fly. No. You see, the son, the religious person unchanged by grace, is always dealing in rewards. Am I doing well enough? Am I accepted well enough? So either they become horribly arrogant because they think they're doing so well, or they become thoroughly depressed because they know they're not doing well at all. I didn't get the rewards. I didn't get the things that I deserve. That's essentially what he's saying. And this son? Well, he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand it at all. The younger son had a song to sing that the older son knew nothing about. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulder brought me back to his home again. While angels in his presence sang, until the courts of heaven rang, oh, the love that sought me, oh, the blood that bought me, Oh, the grace that brought me to your fold, to the sheepfold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. In that conversation with that grandmother, I was concerned about the well-being of their relationship more than anything else, hence my counsel. Don't misunderstand that in any way at all. If I was in the receiving end of another question about another situation from another person in another time, I may answer absolutely differently. But in that case, I answered in that way, and I would not answer in any other way, no matter what anybody says on the Internet as of the last 10 days. If that were the case, I would never— if that were the case, I, would never, I should never have said it in the first place. If people want to, me to recant and to repent, to repent? I, I, I repent daily because I say a lot of things that I shouldn't say. I mean, check with Sue, but the fact of the matter is I'm not ready to repent over this. I don't have to. 
Okay, so there's a few things here. And this is where I think, like, where somebody may get confused by what he's saying. Because he's making points here that are not entirely incorrect about the older son. Right? I mean, the parable of the prodigal son is about a son that goes off and just just completely takes advantage of God's grace. And then realizes what he's done, repents, and comes home to the father. As well as the older son being the prototype of the Pharisee, which thinks that keeping all the rules is going to get them in good with God, and it's not going to. So the point is, yes, both need grace, but then he uses that, even the hymn there about grace that sought me and bought me, to to explain away why the advice he gave was good and then sort of try to caveat it with, if it was a different circumstance, I may give a different answer. Well, like why? What is the one thing that would make a pastor say, well, I would give you, I would advise you to go this time, but I would advise this person not to go. And it seems, I'm just going off his own words here. It seems that what his caveat is for whether to go or not to go is if a relationship would be severed or kept based on your attendance or not attendance. Now, again, in situations like this, I would advise a person not to go. The idea being is that doesn't mean you're cutting off a relationship with somebody. I'm assuming this grandmother, if she cares as much for her grandchild as she says, as is being made out to be, is that there are plenty of other circumstances by in which she can show the love of Jesus to her granddaughter. The wedding is not the only time. And if the grandchild, I don't know if it's grandson or granddaughter, it's been both in this story, but if the grandchild, if that's the make or break for the grandkid, that's on the grandkid. The grandmother has gone as far above as she can go to show the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus to her grand her grandchild. She uh, this is not the only situation in which it is and if the grandchild is going to make this one thing the make or break of the relationship that's on the grandchild. It's not on the grandma and the grandma the advice that the pastor needs to give the grandmother is that this isn't all on you. This relationship, if it is severed, yes, will be painful. Yes, it will hurt. Yes, you will mourn. Yes, you will pray. But the severing isn't being done by you. And your arm shouldn't be twisted into attending something with the caveat being, I'm never going to talk to you again if you don't go. It's just not. And it shouldn't be. And you shouldn't feel that pressure. I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to that their kids have cut them off and they feel so guilty about it. It's not their fault. Their children did that. And these people, I can, I, can, I can attest, are great parents. So this pastoral advice of you should go so the relationship isn't severed is honestly a joke. It really, I mean, this idea and using this text to sort of get there is really weird. Because it is about the repentance of sinners coming to the Lord, is what it is. And he's not focusing on the the repentance of unbelievers coming to Christ. He's focusing on the Pharisaical son and then trying to attribute those attributes to those that are against the advice that he gave. 
and is adamantly saying, I don't have to repent for this. I'm not going to repent for this because I wouldn't have told her this was the good advice if I didn't believe it was the good advice even now, which is a really weird take, um, especially from somebody. And I think this is where it's sort of weird. We sort of expect this from like Andy Stanley. What we don't expect this from is Alistair Begg because up until this point, he's expositionally preached through the word and gave great advice. So I think this is where the tension is because he's not doing what he classically does, which is work through the text and preach it from the word. He's allowing this emotional relationship part to edge its way in, which to be honest with you is always what usually causes faithful ministers of the gospel to go crazy. It's this, it's this, well, yeah, but these relationships, there is a point in which you have done all you are able to do. And if somebody cuts off the relationship with you, it's on them because you're still pursuing that relationship. Now, let me say something that would be a little explosive. <laughs> I've lived here for 40 years, and those who know me best know that when we talk theology, when we talk stuff, I, I've always said I am a little bit out of sync with the American evangelical world for this reason, that I am the product of British evangelicalism represented by John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Eric Alexander, Sinclair Ferguson, Derek Prime. I am a product of that. I have never been a product of American fundamentalism. I come from a world in which it is possible for people to actually grasp the fact that there are nuances in things. Okay, so this is where he sort of sets up the, I mean, again, this is, he's went through the text, he's given his explanation, now he gets into, I'm not going to repent, and it's because I can understand nuance, and the rest of you that disagree with me are fundamentalist and you don't understand nuance. You see, th this, is the, this is the crazy part. <laughs> this, just keep going, keep going. Those of you who are lawyers understand this. Everything is not so categorically clear that if you put one foot out of this box, you gotta be removed from the box forever. And so, I went back to prove to myself that that really is the case, and I dug out a book that I've had since I was in my 20s, uh, Christ the Controversialist by John Stott. And in that book, he is tackling the challenges of living in the world uh, without being um, capitulating to the thoughts of the world. And chapter 7, and I'm sure this is going to sell a lot of these books. John is now in heaven, and it won't matter to him, but uh, chapter 7 is, is on responsibility, colon, withdrawal or involvement. Okay, so I'm going to let him go through this whole thing and read it. But I, again, I want to be as consistent as possible with every sermon review I do. This would be the point in almost every sermon review where I would say, we've left the text now. There's lots of sermons in which we've done reviews on, in which we're on the text for a minute. It's used as like a jumping board into their main point or their main sort of reasoning for using it. And then they go off on some rabbit trail. And so, at this point, like, okay, great, we read the text. 
but like what are we doing now then we're not we're not actually exegeting the text we've called everybody pharisees that don't know nuance and then we're going to use a book to prove that point so i'm just going to let him go all the way through this quote of what he's what he's quoting here so he writes an entire chapter on this question how in the world do we manage uh, to live in this way and he, he outlines it by, first of all, identifying the attitude of the Pharisee. And he points out, and I'm not here to give you the whole book, but he points out that when, after the Babylonian captivity, uh, the, the, the people were repatriated, the exiles came back, and they were absolutely determined that they would not be sucked into the vortex that was represented in the, the context to which they had returned. And they were committed to holiness, and they knew that God required them to be holy. But what they forgot was that the holiness was, first of all, a holiness of heart and mind and thought. Some of them then decided, well, we can go fairly close to the environment in which we're living, and that is true not only then. You can read it in Nehemiah. We're reading there at the moment in, in McShane. And you can see that happening, the question of marriage and so on. As time continues, and the Jews are living, for example, in the context of Greece, uh, of Alexander the Great, and so on, the infiltration of the culture into Judaism was such that there were two branches that emerged from it. One branch were the Hellenists, who said, I think that we can engage with the culture, and uh, in doing so, they surrendered some of their convictions. On the other side of the Hellenists were the Hasideans, or the Hasidim. The Hasidim are present in contemporary America, and some of you are friends who are part of that. You meet them at the airport, and so on. And the Hasidim said, no, under no circumstances are we going to get involved in any of this stuff. Pharisees, actually, is an Aramaic term for separatists. And the Pharisees were the religious exclusives of their day. Quotes, in their determination to conform strictly to the law, they held aloof from any and every contact which, in their view, might defile them. This entailed an avoidance not only of Gentiles, not only of Hellenized Jews, whom they regarded as liberals, but of the common people as well, who through ignorance of the law no doubt broke it, and as lawbreakers were unclean. The superior and scornful attitude which the Pharisees adopted towards the common people appears several times in the Gospels, including right here, in chapter 15. The Pharisaic doctrine of holiness of separation from the world, he says, was a perverted doctrine. The motivation to keep yourself pure and holy is a right motivation, but it was perverted by the way in which they applied it. Instead of seeking to be holy in thought and word and deed, while retaining relationships of love and care with all men, they withdrew from social contact with sinners and despised those who didn't follow suit. They basically became a holy club, and they, in the process, became harsh 
and censorious. And it is that which Jesus is taking on when he tells these stories and when he gives these parables. If that's the Pharisee's attitude, what is the attitude of Jesus? Well, the attitude of Jesus is totally at variance with that of the Pharisees themselves. All right, really quick, before he gets into the Jesus, so he named the Pharisees. To be, to be fair, the, um, the history there of the Hellenist and the Pharisees is accurate. Like, it's a very interesting history about how the Pharisees came about. It's very interesting how the Sadducees came about. There is one text, though, that I just, like, when he was speaking about this that came to mind, it's actually Acts chapter 6. So this is obviously after Pentecost and whatnot. And it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this isn't talking about Sadducees and Pharisees, but this is the division that is... So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the religious class that are present, but the Hellenists and the Hebrews are the more on-the-ground, everyday people split that happened within Judaism. The Hellenists being those Jews that uh, were not incredibly strict to the law, that they thought they could bring in some sort of Greek thought, Alexander, uh, Alexandrian thought, into their process. And the Hebrews were those that were more strict to the law. And so just because we have Sadducees and Pharisees breaked up within the sort of hierarchy of religious rulers, the Hellenists and the Hebrews were both Jews, but at different adherences to the law and how much they, you know, they were, they were, how strictly they held it. And so what we have in chapter six is the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who will appoint this day but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And they said uh, what they said, please the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen. And so it goes through here. And what's important to know with these names is that these names are almost entirely Hellenistic names. So this, this divide within even the early church, the whole point I'm pointing this out is this divide within the early church was still present in regards to the Jews that were not so strict and the Jews that were, that were both coming to know Jesus and working this out. And so this whole idea of, of well, don't be the Pharisee isn't like, it's, it's sort of a straw man, right? There is truth to it that there's this idea that you try to be really good and, you know, be really strict to the law and you separate yourself. And there is a bad way to go about that. But the reason that the Pharisees started is because in the exile, they, they said, God is punishing us for not adhering to the law that he gave us. And so we should devote ourselves to that law. Now, that went left real quick with the addition of a whole bunch of rules and everything. So there is a way to pursue holiness that is right and a way to pursue holiness that is wrong. What Beg seems to be attributing here is disagreeance to go to a transgender wedding because a relationship would be cut off is always fundamental and never for the pursuit of holiness. That is essentially what he's saying. Now he's kind of, he's veiled it in a whole bunch of, these are the Pharisees, they're the separatists, this is really bad, you don't want to be them. But it's sort of a, a wholesale idea that if you disagree with this, then you are a fundamentalist Pharisee. And he's basing that completely on 
the older son's reaction within the parable of the prodigal son. Like, let's not mix this up. This is exactly what's happened. Um, and so he's going to go in now a little bit more, but I wanted to draw that out. I thought that was interesting. When he said that, I thought, man, that sounds a lot like the split that was apparent within the early church. It's not that it's, it's not there. It's that, that through the gospel, these things are worked out of us through sanctification to where we pursue right holiness. And so it's just, I don't know. It, it was an interesting call out. Maybe it made no interest to you at all, but I found it very interesting. Let's get back to the sermon. Uh, it looks like we have about 16 minutes left in this sermon. They were scandalized by his free and easy fraternization with these people. You can't do that. You can't go there. That's why it begins. All the, the publicans and sinners who said, we got to go meet Jesus. And the Pharisees were grumbling, can you believe this thing? He goes to the house of publicans and sinners. He meets with sinners. Bartimaeus, a blind guy. Even the disciples said, I'll be quiet, Bartimaeus. And he has to turn to his boys and he says, hey, don't say that to Bartimaeus. Go call Bartimaeus. And he gives Bartimaeus his sight. One of the six things which a rabbi was not permitted to do was to converse with a woman in public. That was a sure indication that you were off base. That's why when his disciples came back, after they'd gone away for the food, when you read that as in the present context, you say, and they were surprised that he was talking with a woman. Why would you be surprised that he's talking with a woman? Because rabbis don't talk to women. The strictest Hasidim wouldn't even be seen talking to their own wives in public. That's how tight they wanted to draw the circle. The Pharisees would gather up their robes in righteous horror at the possibility of even coming within breathing space of a prostitute. And she comes and breaks a flask over his feet. This guy cannot be who he says he is. If he was really the Son of God, he wouldn't be doing this. Loved ones, Phariseeism is alive and well in all of our hearts. We have to guard against it. The motivation for purity and holiness of life and circumspection and so on is absolutely unquestionable. The real challenge comes when we are confronted by issues that don't just fit our clean little categories. So, okay, so he says that whole, pursuing holiness is good. The issue comes when situations arise that don't fit our clean little categories. Now again, this is based, again, on his own words, where he said his main concern was the relationship between the grandmother and the grandchild. I don't see where the clean little categories comment even comes in, except to say, you're not nuanced enough on this, and I am nuanced enough to recognize this. When he's already said his main lens for viewing this entire situation is through the lens of, is this relationship between the grandmother and the grandchild going to break up? And so there seems, there's a lot of like, thoughts here that are not connecting well within 
his own explanation of why he's okay with this. Let's keep going. What distinguished Jesus from the Pharisees, quote Stott, was in a word, grace. The divine initiative which first seeks and then saves the lost sinner. He says of the older brother, he represents those to whom religion is a matter of merit and its just reward, and to whom the concept of grace is unjust, even immoral. He knew nothing of the guilt which no human merit can expunge, nothing of the divine offer of an unmerited forgiveness, nothing of heavenly joy over penitent sinners. He was harsh, sour, self-righteous, and pitiless. While others made merry, he himself stayed away, and he sulked. So again, everything he's saying about the son in the story isn't incorrect. His comparison is a complete false equivalency. Within the parable, the son comes home that was lost, is now found, and he's repentant. In fact, he's willing to work as a servant in his father's household, but his father brings him back as a son, saying he was once dead, now he's alive. The party is being had because the son has returned home. The older brother won't come to the party because, again, he was right. Beg was right before when he said the son won't come to the party because he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't. He does need to understand grace. The older son does. But the false equivalency is that you don't, if you're not going to this wedding, then you don't understand grace, in which what is happening at this wedding is not repentant sinners coming together in a relationship which God has ordained and commanded. And so it's a really weird twist to equivocate these two things together when they're not even close to identical. When the text in 15 is literally about repentant sinners coming to a knowledge of a God that has sought them out and waits for them to repent and come home, to a wedding in which the, which the Lord calls an abomination in other places in Scripture. Like, it's just... Where? <laughs> make it make sense. In brief, he was a Pharisee. And of the Pharisees, Edelsheim could write, theirs was not a gospel to the lost. They had nothing to say to sinners. Christ's fraternization with outcasts was interpreted by the Pharisees as an inexcusable compromise with sin. They did not see it for what it really was, an expression of the divine, divine compassion uh, towards sinners. Okay, so again, he is not, this is not something, he's not ignorant. Let's re-listen to that. I usually don't go back. This might mess it up. Hopefully not. Let's go back just a little bit. We are at 3309. Let's go back here and re-listen to what he said. These as an inexcusable compromise with sin. They did not see it for what it really was an expression of the divine, divine compassion uh, towards sinners. Okay, so what he's saying is that if you see the grandmother going to the wedding, you, you see it 
as a compromise. But what she's really doing is showing divine compassion. That's the equivalent. He, that's the thing he's trying to pull out and make here. And not by any accident. Like he's just, he's blatant about it. Is that you're a Pharisee if you think she compromised by going or that he, he compromised by suggesting that she does go. You don't understand grace. And so he's putting the burden of proof on those that are pushing back against what he's suggested. You're the Pharisee. <laughs> if you disagree with him, you're the Pharisee. That's what he's saying. And you're the Pharisee that doesn't understand grace and the compassion that the grandmother is trying to show her granddaughter. Now, again, this is where, as a pastor, there is a complication in regards to how you communicate this because you are dealing with an individual, in this case a grandmother, that deeply loves their grandchild and wants to, with everything they have, let that grandchild know that they are loved, that they want them to know Jesus, and they want the best for them. And this grandmother is trying to work that out in the particular situation of attending a wedding between two people that should not be getting married. And so instead of walking this stranger, complete stranger to his own account, he, he, he doesn't know this lady, walking her through the difficulty, the reality of you are going to have to continue pursuing your granddaughter or grandson, I don't know, your grandchild in different ways than just this one way. Keep loving your grandchild the, the, the way you've already been doing it. Christopher Yuan, in his book, actually points out that his parents, while being openly disapproving of his relationship while he was in a homosexual relationship, still ate with them, still invited them over, still did things, but was very clear about the line in which they were not going to cross. And when you read that chapter, you really do get this sense of, of, of Luke 15, this eating with those you disagree with, but for the for the purpose of showing God's grace to draw them to repentance. That is entirely different than attending something in which your attendance is a significant stamp of approval. It's just, it's a stretch. And it's a, it's a weird stretch because it's Beg that's saying it. Now, the challenge in this, and I'm going to wrap this up because time goes. The challenge for me in this is I just assume and I, I'm not going to assume it anymore. I assume that people are able to put two and two together and get four, not five or seven or nine or whatever it is. So, for example, um, in the last days when this thing began, um, my daughter said to me, Dad, you were way ahead of this game a long time ago when Ellen DeGeneres came out and you preached those sermons on the gay debate. Okay, so listen to what he says here, because this is important. Because he's, what he's going to do is sort of give a, I haven't compromised, and here's my proof. So let's hear him out, and then we'll talk about it. I mean, you've been so clear about this for all of your ministry. What is this about? I said, honey, I don't, I don't really know what it's about, but uh, yeah, that's right. And most recently, in dealing with Romans chapter 1. So I assume that anybody who picks this up goes, oh, well, wait a minute. Whatever, whatever he's on about there, there's no reason for alarm, because after all, listen to what he said. And this is what I said in Romans 1, talking about this very issue. Quotes, so here's the challenge. How do you do this? 
In other words, how do you, how do you express the love of Jesus and, and do so in a way that doesn't just compromise everything? How do you honor God, obey His Word, and treat your neighbors and your friends and your family members who have decided to go down this wrong path? Some people have decided the way to handle it is by admonition. So you just simply stand up and keep telling them, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Some people have decided, well, we just won't say anything at all. Just let it go. Who cares? You know, it's a big world. People do different things. Neither is a possibility for a Bible-believing Christian. We are to treat with honor those who view us with hatred. Now, understand that this grandchild was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy, really, in the family circle by dint of her lifestyle, an enemy. And Jesus says, you're supposed to love your enemies. Now, we can disagree over whether I gave that grandmother good advice or not. Not everybody on the pastoral team thinks I gave very good advice. And as I said, uh, you know, on another occasion with a different person in a different context, the advice may be very different. But at least let's acknowledge the fact that what we're doing is we're wrestling with biblical principle. And when principle for, let's say, holiness of life comes up against the principle of love for your enemy, how are you, how are you going to put that together? And see, that's confusing to me, because that's not difficult. Like, I'm not saying it's the most simple thing to do, but it's not as if Christians throughout time haven't had to say, this is my enemy, and I must love them in pursuit of holiness. It's, it's, that's a weird thing that he says these two things are wrestling together. H how? We have early believers. Let's just give an example. We have early believers that in the pursuit of holiness— love the very governors that are persecuting them because they refuse to sacrifice to the Roman idols, which is the only thing they have to do. I mean, if you read these accounts, the only thing these early Christians have to do is sacrifice to the idols and they'll be let go. They don't even have to, in some cases, renounce Christ. Like, by and large, the Romans don't really care if you worship Jesus as long as you worship the other gods too. Like, in some instances, they're, depending on who you're reading in the account, sometimes they make them renounce Christ, but it's really more of a power trip than it is a we don't want you worshiping him. It's just you can't worship him exclusively. And in every way, these early believers say, my pursuit of holiness and my love for enemy are not in contradiction. I will pursue holiness while I love my enemy. There's an account, and I forget the guy's name, where he's in front of the governor, and the governor tells him that he must sacrifice to the idol or he's going to die. And this man, this early Christian, tells this governor, this prefect, that I will not do so, but I will pray that God enlightens you so you can know his son Jesus. And these two things, the pursuit of holiness and the love for enemy, are not in battle there. Just as the pursuit of holiness for a believer and this loving your enemy situation comes up, these are not in contradiction. The grandmother in this case can love her granddaughter, which as Alex, uh, uh, Alistair said, her granddaughter is in open rebellion toward the Lord. Her grandmother 
has probably, outside of this entire wedding event, has loved her granddaughter, which is an open rebellion to the Christ that the grandmother follows, and has had no contradiction up to that point. Has probably, in a number of conversations, loved her, cared for her, and told her that her way of life is not going to end in a way that she thinks it is. In fact, it leads to ultimate death. And both of these things are not intention. These are the things that you deal with every day in your life as you live in a, the world as a believer. These are the same, these two things, living in holiness and loving your enemy, are things that you deal with at work every day. You have to be upright and holy and obey the rules, even if they're stupid, with sometimes coworkers and bosses that want to get you fired or trying to back you into a corner or are openly mocking you because of your faithfulness. You still live holy and love your enemies. There are a number of situations in which every Christian has to interact with these two realities on a daily basis, and it is not complicated and it is not a wrestle. Is it, is it a situation in which it's taxing? Is there a situation in which it really grows you in sanctification? Is it, are these situations in which you wish it was easier than it is? Of course. But pursuing holiness and loving your enemy are not two things that fight against one another. And it's weird that he has to make this equivocation to say, like, she wants to pursue God, this grandmother does, but how does she love her granddaughter without going to this wedding? It is, a, it is a stretch. I'm just going to say it. it is a, it's weird to hear Alistair Begg talking like Andy Stanley. You got a problem with the grandmother showing up, sitting on the front row in a context that she absolutely despises, and sitting on our lap, nicely wrapped with beautiful paper and a bow around it, is her gift. Do you have a problem with the grandmother going to the strip club where her grandson strips with a Bible on her lap? You have a problem with that? You have a problem with the dad going out and helping his son, you know, sell drugs? I mean, he's got a Bible that he's going to give him. You have a problem with fill in the blank sin? You have a problem with a Christian being there? Yeah. This isn't a separatist mentality. This is a pursuing holiness, loving the sinner. And to love the sinner, to love your enemy, is to call them to holiness, not to participate in the sin. I'm going to be quiet. We're going to let it finish because I think these last 10 minutes really, what comes to the surface is his actual motivation here. The gift of a Bible. For a granddaughter, she knows, has no interest in the Bible. But because she believes that the entrance of God's Word brings light. Also, let me just say this. She could literally give her a Bible at any other time, and probably has. She is prepared to trust the Holy Spirit to do the work. What happens to homosexual people, in my experience, quotes, is that they are either reviled or they are affirmed. The Christian has to say, we will not treat you in either of those ways. We cannot revile you, but we cannot affirm you.
And the reason that we can't revile you is the same reason why we can't affirm you. Because of the Bible, because of God's love, because of His grace, and because of His goodness. That's why we call every sinner to repentance in Jesus. That's why Jesus is enough. No, you don't hate those that are your enemy. You call them to holiness. You walk beside them, calling them to holiness, living out the gospel. And part of living out the gospel for the believer is drawing lines at certain places and saying, I'm not going to do that. I just preached on Daniel chapter 3, right? So you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before the golden statue. Um, Nebuchadnezzar saying, bow down. And they're refusing to do it. Just refusing, flat out refusing. We're not doing that. And what they say to Nebuchadnezzar is like, God will free us from you. He will save us from you. And even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down, which is saying that like, no matter what you do, we're not going to bow down to this idol. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, well, like, just like, I know you disagree with it, but if you could just do it, right? I mean, you don't even have to really be worshiping. Just bow down and pretend you are and just do that. No, because Nebuchadnezzar knows that not bowing down or even pretending to bow down is a sign of bending the knee. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go, no, no. God commands that we not do that, and we're not going to do that. And no matter what you say or do is going to make us do that. Because sinners will always put up some sort of line in the sand and then demand you don't do a line in the sand too. Nebuchadnezzar will say, bow or die. And whenever Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go, no, and draw their own line, he goes, fine, I'll kill you. And in a similar way, with the grandmother and the grandchild situation, we don't know if this is accurate, but this is what we're presuming. The grandmother goes, I won't go this far. And the granddaughter or grandson or whatever says, well, fine, I'm cutting off a relationship with you. And that is the point in which even in Hebrews draws back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said they were faithful. Even though they didn't see the promise, they were faithful. Quenched fires. It doesn't actually name them, but there's this, this sort of uh, note to them about the quenching of the fire. Is that even in, in the sight of immediate death, they go, no. There is a line that I will not cross, and that's it. And we've gotten really bad as believers of making up reasons why it's okay to bow to the statue. And in this case... It's because of loss of relationship. Maybe I'll just give you a couple of comments. <laughs> there are one or two good ones. And um, this is weird. I'm going to let him go through it. Basically, it's like going through your own comment section and picking out the people that agree with you and then like posting that. It's a weird flex, but let's let him do it. Not, not many, though. And um, my friends and family have been saving me from, from the the most strident of them. I'm, gra I'm grateful for that. Um, I this, yeah, that was, that was a different one. Hang on, don't worry. We'll be there. This just came from somebody to Jeff, to me, 
from South Africa. Uh, please pass on this short message to Pastor Beck, following the criticism he's received over his statement concerning Christians attending a gay marriage. Thank you, Pastor Beck, for your balanced Christian approach to what is such a difficult topic for Christians to deal with. You're clear on the fact that homosexuality is not God-approved, but you've shown wisdom and compassion as you show how Christians who have made their position clear on this matter can still be a light to those who live in darkness. I am one who agrees with your big biblical view as to the sinfulness of these things, and have myself been wrestling with how to advise people who have family members who are in gay relationships, etc., without compromising our Christian position on sin. I'm sorry that you've had such a negative reaction from others in our Christian family who have a more hardline attitude and seemingly misunderstood your position of compassion and see it as compromise. I don't believe you've compromised your position at all, but have tried to show love and compassion. As a fellow pastor who was a true prodigal son, it was only the saving grace and compassion of Christ that saved me and the love of Christian parents who prayed for me over 12 years. Their compassion was not compromise. I knew that they did not approve of my sinful lifestyle living with a woman, but they continued to love me and to uphold me. Okay, did they pay for his rent, though, right? I mean, again, this is—I'll just say it again to be as consistent as I can with these sermon reviews. Where's the Bible? Like, we have so far left Luke chapter 15 at this point. Their compassion is what I now see in your advice. Now, be encouraged. And then perhaps just one other, um, if I can—if I can find it from— Brother. This begins, Forgive my intrusion. You probably need my encouragement less than I need to offer it, but I feel compelled to say I love you and thank God for you, for your ministry, your integrity, and your conviction. I can more easily walk with a friend who wrestles with how to show faithfulness and grace in a broken world, even though he arrive at a different conclusion than my own. You get it? I can, I can walk with a brother who's wrestling with how to show faithfulness and grace in a broken world, even if his conclusion is different from my own. I can do that easier than I can keep company with those who don't even feel the tension and easily criticize a brother over a legitimate difference of opinion. And then he goes on to uh, say something uh, gracious. I wrote back to him. I said, Brother, if there's any benefit in finding myself in this storm in a teacup, it must surely be in discovering that I have friends. Your intrusion is most welcome. And given that you've taken time on this, your very special weekend to encourage me, is evidence of a selfless generosity of spirit that few of us can match. I value your friendship and send my love to you. And um, so, hopefully, uh, this whole thing will just—the uh, storm in the teacup will—eventually, the teacup will fall over. Okay, so, again, I don't know what the purpose was of reading those two emails, um, other than just be like, see, people agree with me. Um, what he's about to say is that eventually this will go away. It can't carry on forever, which is true which is absolutely true. 
Um, controversies can't go on forever. Um, and so what we got, we have five minutes left. So let's finish this up. There's only so many things you can, uh, I, I don't know how you can keep this going, actually. The, the reason that I haven't responded to any of the things in a personal way is because I, there's nothing that I can really add that I think would be, uh, that would make anybody believe me anymore. <laughs> I think I can make it worse if I say more things. And it's bad enough as it is. And oh, just one other thought. And I expect people to, how do they decide which bit they're going to troll through the social media, which bits they want to pick up? Where were they when, when, when I was speaking at the Christian college on the West Coast, and I had a lesbian walkout? And they, they shut the whole thing down and walked out, and the campus went into chaos for a week. You know why? Because I was explaining Ephesians chapter 5, and I made the most unbelievable mistake of saying, the only place for sexual relationships is within a heterosexual, monogamous relationship between one man and one woman for life. Amen. And at that, they stood up and walked out. Well, why didn't somebody catch that one for me? <laughs> but you know what? I'm glad they didn't, and I'll tell you why. Because if I've got to go down on— This is important. Listen. —on the side of one or the other, I'll go down on this side. I'll go down on the side of compassion with people actually accusing me of just weakness, rather than go down on the side of condemnation, which closes any doors of opportunity for future engagement with those who know exactly what we believe about the Bible and about Jesus and about so on. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that this is helpful. I, I think as long as you understand that my response to one grandmother whom I have never met um, was not in any way a blanket recommendation to all Christians to attend LGBTQ weddings. It was nothing to do with that at all. If I was misguided in any way, it was I allowed my grandfatherly hat to uh, take over. Okay, so really quick, just to be clear on what he just said. Basically, he lays out—he's already laid it out, but he kind of reiterates uh, that he's been consistent and faithful on the subject of LBGT, LGBTQ plus over the years. And so now you can't call him unfaithful on the topic because he suggested that a grandmother go to a wedding because he's always said that it's a sin. The issue isn't that he hasn't been faithful all these years on it. In fact, the issue is that he, he did suggest— a grandmother go. The issue comes from the fact that he has been faithful all these years, and then he says that. Now, everybody's waited, and I've waited too, to say anything about it, because I didn't want to like assume things or assume reasoning or anything like that. This is seems to be the fullest and only explanation you're going to get from it, because he says, if I say anything else, I'm not going to, it's not going to help, because it's not going to be any clearer. So this was supposed to be clear, this was supposed to be kind of his clear explanation of, of why. And so basically he's saying, I don't approve of it, but I suggested she go because my grandfatherly hat got put on and the idea of a relationship being broken was a bad idea, essentially, is what he's saying. Let's finish up. I'm going to let him talk for the last four minutes and then we'll kind of wrap it up. It was my personal opinion as I sensed what was best. 
as I learned about the individual and specific situation. That's as good as I can say. I hope that will be helpful to you. We don't clap, usually. So. <laughs> Just as I pray, I want to read these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. Herein is love, writes John, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so may the love of God and the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit fill our hearts afresh, unite our lives in the grip of the gospel, and enable us to reach out to an aimless and confused generation with the story that there is a sheepfold and a shepherd who has actually given his life in order that we, who by nature are like sheep without a shepherd, may be brought into his safety. Part us with your blessing, Lord. Watch over and between us in these days, and uh, grant that uh, every opportunity that we have to speak the truth in love we may seize. And we ask it, commending one another to your keeping. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so that was, yeah, that's the end of it right there. Okay, so let's go. Let's let's break it down. Um, again, in case you just got onto this video, there's three things we look at in every sermon review. Did they read the scripture? Did they exegete the scripture using context and culture to bring out the application for the modern believer? And three, did they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the first one, as you probably saw him do, he did. He read the scripture pretty thoroughly, went through all three parables, uh, and sort of talked about the setting of the three parables. Now, for his context, right, did he exegete the text? I would say kind of, but barely. Basically, he took the focus directly to the son and didn't really focus on the repentance of uh, the, the, the joy that comes in heaven because of the repentance of sinners. And he kind of zeroed in specifically on the Pharisee. Now, if we were focusing in specifically on the Pharisee for the sake of explaining that you should not have a, you know, an attitude of separation and unlovingness in which you only keep the law, then that would have 
been sort of okay. Again, you kind of miss, I think, the totality of what happens in the parables. But long long story short, no, he didn't really exegete the scriptures. He takes out the part that he wanted to take out so that he could then say, the Pharisees mentioned in this story are all of you that don't understand grace and compassion um, as the grandmother did, essentially. And again, remember, this was a response sermon. This wasn't an everyday sort of sermon. This was very clearly a response sermon. And so he sort of utilizes the text, and I'm using that loosely, in a way that really benefits his end goal, which is to sort of lambast. I don't know if this is his goal. It comes off as his goal to really press hard on those that are disagreeing with him and make them the Pharisees with no nuance, no compassion, and all about keeping the, the rules, which surely he knows is not actually the motivation of everyone that is saying that the advice he gave was poor. Did he preach the gospel? Well, no, he didn't. Uh, very briefly at the end in the prayer, he talks about lost sheep coming into the fold, but at no point in this response sermon of the 45 minutes did we hear about the life, death, resurrection, and reconciliation that Jesus brings to a relationship. Rather, we were told that if you don't show uh, grace um, and love by going to an event that is an abomination, then you don't understand grace and love like the grandmother does or he does. So where do we sit here? Because, right, this is where a normal sermon review ends, and now we just need to talk about, like, the Alistair Beck effect, right? Um, what do you do with somebody like this? That has very much helped a lot of people that has, up to this point, really worked through the word expositionally, that has been doctrinally sound throughout many years, as far as we can all tell, and then comes and presents a sermon like this. What do you what do you do with a pastor like that? Now, the people in his congregation, at least the people there that they showed that wide shot of that were clapping, are okay with it. And I think partially they're okay with it because, again, when you go to a church and you've sat under a pastor for a long time and you've seen the care and compassion and the things that he's done for you, you are very, very much, you're just, you're, you're, your proclivity is to be on his side because he, he has been on yours probably. He's probably been there at births. He's been there at funerals. He's been there at death. He's been at the most highs and the lows of your life. And so you feel like you've got to have his back. For some people, he has a similar parasocial relationship with a lot of people on the internet that have watched a lot of his sermons and have learned a lot from him. I think the reality is, is that we have to be truthful that he kind of butchered that scripture and made false equivalencies that in any other situation, he would have probably called other people out for. And he does so by his own words through the lens of relationship, he tries to sort of caveat it at the end with love, like do everything with love. But his initial purpose was already stated at the beginning. It's all about, does it break the relationship? Not accounting for the countless scriptures that talk about loving God above all things. So it really comes to the point to where, for me, I mean, you make your own decision clearly, but after seeing this sermon, I have pretty severe questions about the guidance he's giving in other areas. I mean, 
he seems incredibly biblically sound, but in the application of that biblical orthodoxy, the orthopraxy he suggests doesn't seem to line up. This idea of being holy and loving this, loving your enemy, being at war with one another for him, I don't see why he would be wrestling through that. And so for me, I have to go, I have to watch Alistair Begg with, with a little bit more of a critical eye than I did before. And to be frank with you, just like with the John MacArthur stuff, after I you know went through that whole timeline with the Eileen Gray stuff and I said at the end of one of those videos, I can't suggest John MacArthur to anybody unless this gets cleared up. I think this is a, a bit worse in regards to the fact that Alistair came out and said, no, I'm not backing down. I'm not repenting. And so I have, uh, me personally, I'm just like, okay, well, that kind of clears it up for me. I'm not saying he's not a believer. I'm not saying he's a false teacher. But with a lot of people that we've done reviews on, I think there are things that he might say right, but this application is terrible. And so we got to be really, really careful and cautious about Alistair now. And to be fair, I think we should be careful and cautious about a lot of pastors we listen to, our own included, right? To end this, one of the reasons that we do these sermon reviews is to walk all the way through what a person says and how they say it and how it connects with the word. Often what I found, even reviewing my own sermons, is that we don't stick closely enough to the text. And oftentimes, what is orthodoxy and orthopraxy don't line up, and we need to do a much better job about that and being critical of that and calling people to account to that. So for me, I don't care if Alistair has had sound orthodoxy his entire life up until this point. He's off here. And yes, he is a much older man in the faith than me. But I think there is something to be said to saying, yeah, but hold on, just like, wait a second. Make that make sense. And then when he says, well, this is my reasoning, it just doesn't line up. Let me know what you think in the comment section below, and I'll talk to you later.